Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also extra excited about today's episode because its premise came together through a happy accident. My guest today is Jason Pargin, who writes for Cracked and for the New York Times fiction bestseller list as David Wong. On our latest episode with Jason, we explored pop culture propaganda that the future will think is really creepy, looking at messages baked into today's movies and TV and video games that our descendants will notice and say, oh, wow, why did people in the early 21st century celebrate being surveilled by their own government, uh, to, name, to name one example? And a happy accident of putting that show together is today's episode. Our topic is how pop culture gets World War II wrong and why that matters, how it gets it wrong and why it matters. Because as Jason and I looked over the pop culture landscape together, before we talked to you, we kept finding movies, games, and more that fixate on America's role in World War II. That's the touchstone for tons of fiction, tons of Oscar films, tons of entire video game franchises. And we also kept finding how that impacts the groupthink we have within American culture, and how all that determines everything from the movies we watch, to the new wars we start, to the villains from history that come roaring back from time to time. So, it deserves its own standalone podcast, I think, and we had a great time making it. It's time you heard it. Please sit back or throw on your Saving Private Ryan DVD with the volume all the way up because screw this clam fella, it's good that a World War II movie helped us decide to invade Iraq again. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I'm so excited about this episode because this one, like I said in the intro, is sort of born out of prepping another one because we found so many things to get into about World War II, the the history of it, the conceptions about it, and why it matters that uh, people have a strange reading on it. Yeah. And just to be clear, this is not about history. There are many other like specialist history podcasts that will get into the minutiae of these things and, and trivia. This is about why we remember World War II wrong. And why we remember right. Hitler wrong, and why everything we say about Hitler is wrong on a day-to-day <laughs> basis, and how we got here. Because I feel like this is the perfect and most dramatic example of how information and history and previous events are repackaged with an agenda. And it, and it's particularly a particularly amazing example, too, because uh, to be super, super clear up top, Hitler was evil in history. 99.9% of people think he is evil now, and that's all correct. And yet there's all kinds of wrinkles and differences and ways we talk about him that lead people to be incorrect. I, I feel like it's really fascinating that so many people can be right about the broad, broad stroke and then wrong about other stuff. Yeah, and, and my argument, our argument, is that these details actually matter quite a bit, especially if you are trying to draw a parallel to, <laughs> as as we do today, to literally everything that occurs is measured in terms of, is this or is this not Hitler? The reality is, almost no things are exactly Hitler, other than Hitler. <laughs> yeah, and, and also I feel like, if there are any internet traditions, because uh, it hasn't been around that long, but if there are any internet traditions, one of the few ones is calling things Hitler. Uh, yeah. Going at it from a little bit more of like a f- factual point of view, I am not a World War II scholar 
or even like an amateur World War II enthusiast. What I know about World War II is what most of the people listening know about World War II. I learned from the very uh, sparse history classes I had in public school, and I don't know that I had much of any in college. And when I say pop culture, I mean, I'm including like documentaries and stuff i'm not I'm not saying this i'm going off like the, the captain america movie it's like well what, what role did the red skull play in the real world war ii <laughs> uh, like i'm i'm not not saying that but when i was in school and from everything i heard like the story i was taught broadly was that the nazis launched their attack invaded poland quickly t- took over europe and that basically britain was on the verge of falling and that then the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in an attack that came completely out of the blue for no reason. That drew the USA into the war. And then the USA went to Europe and rescued Europe from Hitler and beat Hitler. I, I was taught that D-Day was the pivotal turning point of the war. That if the D-Day invasion had failed, that would have mean Hitler won. Mm-hmm. And it, like that was sort of the moment at which that was like the Independence Day moment where we we blew up the mothership and and then everyone was was free. Um, yeah. People who are listening who know a lot about the war think I'm exaggerating how stupid my view of the war was. Other people who had my education don't understand why any of that was wrong. And and especially because like some of the some of it is based on actual events that happened, like D Day really happened, Pearl Harbor really happened. It's all this framing of how it's tackled that changes it. Because uh, even from my end, like I, I have an undergraduate degree in history, uh, not not to brag, not that that's a brag, uh, but I also yeah, it's there's sort of a strange phenomenon I think of living in America where I learned some about World War II in my collegiate courses, but I learned a lot more from public school, but also from like war movies, documentaries, uh, occasionally video games. Like It's just really, really, really present throughout culture, uh, whatever level of education you have. But I will say that through all of that, for instance, I was in my early 30s before I ever heard the statistic that 80% of Germany's losses in the war, in the war came against the Soviets. Right. That basically, the, the Russians killed more of the, destroyed more of the German ar- army than everyone else combined at times four. And when I heard that stat, I didn't understand it because it's like I knew obviously that like the Eastern Front was a thing, but the fact that this was primarily a war between Hitler and Stalin and that that was what determined the outcome, and that when we landed at D Day, that we were facing like a tiny fraction of the German war machine, the rest of it kind of lay in ruins across the Russian landscape that mm. was not taught to me. And the reason that was not taught to me is instructive. I feel like, yeah. Why do you, why do you think people in, especially the late 20th century didn't want to celebrate the Soviets? Hmm. I wonder what the reason could be. And in fact, <laughs> it is the exact same reason why right now, when we start to have a conversation about, well, you know, really it was Stalin who stopped Hitler there are a whole bunch of people who recoil because they assume we have an agenda, that we are, in fact, communists, <laughs> and that this is our way of rewriting history to make communism look good, that we're going to say, well, you know, the Soviets stopped Hitler, 
Therefore, the only thing that will stop the modern Hitler is communism. We need communism now in America. The Cold War started even before World War II ended. Like, we we knew right. what was coming. The whole process of divvying up the, the conquered territories was the beginning of the Cold War. So, the idea of teaching American school children at that time... You know, well, we, we do have to give Stalin credit. You know, he really did. We couldn't have done this without him. Like, they weren't going to do that. So it became part of the curriculum. And it was really, it, it required rewriting the entire story. It was like a, a page one rewrite of the of the screenplay. <laughs> that, right. that uh, you know what? No, we got to change. We got to change the, the protagonist. We've got to, we got to change the whole third act. Um, to kind of make America the star. But that is one example. I mentioned Pearl Harbor. That's another one where we were taught that on a clear blue day when America was just minding its own business, J- Japan attacked because okay. they're crazy. Right. They couldn't help it for some reason. They just needed to go all the way to Hawaii. And I bet that a lot of people listening to this still don't understand why that's not necessarily True, like that there had been tensions building up for 10 years prior to that due to what was going on in China. And China, a place that lost millions in World War II, but was mentioned, probably got two sentences in my high school history book. Like that was not covered at all. The story starts in, you know, 19, in Germany, 1933 or whatever. Even with going and getting a degree in it, I realized in hindsight this year, though, like, I didn't really know anything about the history of like East Asia at all. And I, I went and read an entire book about China because I was like, this is a pretty old and large country. I should know some things about it. And America and Japan and all the major European powers were all involved in China in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And it was like, it was very much part of this growing world conflict. Pearl Harbor wasn't out of the blue. I'm very sad it happened, obviously, but it wasn't <laughs> just sort of some random thing that suddenly America had to be involved in the war. They had the Lend-Lease Act where they were sending weaponry to Europe. They were uh, jostling with Japan throughout the run-up to this. Like There were a lot of factors involved that the action movies or Michael Bay movies leave out. To be fair to Michael Bay, I think the movie Pearl Harbor briefly alludes to it, that talking about like an oil blockade and cutting off Japan's oil supply and kind of forcing their hand or whatever. But um, And you know, and like the, the attack was a surprise. That part's true, but it's a, it was a surprise because we were in the middle of what we thought were negotiating a treaty to ease the tensions that we knew we were there. It wasn't out of the blue in the way that like an alien invasion would be out of the blue that, (laughs) you know, like we didn't know this was even on the table. It's that's, that's why the fleet was there. Like the goal today is not necessarily to run through those. We're throwing those out there as examples of, of central key truth. We don't teach kids history just because they need to know history. We teach kids history because we want to motivate them to do certain things and live a certain way. And yeah. whether that history is taught in a classroom, whether it's taught as mythology, whether it's taught as a, a movie, it's all boils down to in the past, blank happened. Therefore, today you need to do this, this, and this. In, in the past, these heroes sacrificed. Therefore, today, if called upon, you need to sacrifice. In the past, bad guys believed that the government should own the means of production. 
Therefore, <laughs> therefore, today you should believe wholeheartedly in capitalism and, and free and free enterprise. At every turn, there is so much history, and there's so much nuance, and there's so much to be drawn from that you can really package it however you want. And we ha- we chose to package World War II in a very specific way in order to influence very specific cultural factors that were going on after the war up to including today. Absolutely, because even looking at what I would learn when I finally got to college, uh, we'd look at books like The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which is by historian Paul Kennedy. And if you look at something like that and just look at the raw numbers of what the sides were producing, you could say, hey, look at these actual numbers where in 1941, the USSR was the main producer of weaponry for the Allied forces. They produced almost as much as Britain and the US put together. But you could also look at it as, hey, the Allies had so much larger of an industrial base than the Axis powers. The war was pretty much decided from the beginning. By 1943, they were producing three times as much weaponry. That was partly due to some victories. Uh, But then you could also frame the war as the movie Saving Private Ryan. It could be about D-Day barely worked out. Uh, Americans like helping each other was the key story of the whole Western front and the whole war. There's enough of a just pile and heap of facts that you can frame it any way you want. And then like you say, Jason, people are framing it particular specific ways to make arguments about how we should live. And remember that in any movie, you've got certain story structure they're required to follow because it's a movie. So you're you're also you're often like following a central character like like George Patton or someone or some hero soldier on the ground, um, whoever Tom Hanks was playing in that in that movie. Just that alone, where by nature they're the good guy, by nature they're on the side of right, and then you have the arc where they almost lose, and then in the end they they triumph, you know. And, and in Saving Private Ryan, there's like some village they have to try to defend, and eventually they do, and they seize the bridge or whatever, and that's the little bit of a happy ending they have there. But it it can never be portrayed as, look, Germany was never going to win this war; they were never going to beat. Just by sheer size, they were never going to beat Russia. It was never in the cards. They were hoping for some other outcome, and that eventually, you know, ultimately it became the United States and Russia jockeying for a position and kind of fighting over the scraps. And that's where the argument about the use of the atomic bomb in Japan comes in, because some people claim it was almost like an intimidation tactic against Russia, because Russia was going right. to move in, and they didn't want a case where you had Russia owning half of Japan and half of it being communist, the way you did wind up with with Germany, of course. And that you almost had like a proxy war going on, they, like in movies where it's portrayed as like the last second touchdown pass that that won the game for us as the clock expired. That's Hollywood story structure that has to to present it that way. That's not real life. You know, real life, it was kind of a doomed enterprise. So more relevant to what we're talking about now, when you, you then rewind and start trying to learn the lessons of Hitler and like how he got to, came to power, how Germany got that way, it's very, very similar. We, we want to tell it in a very simplistic way that could be easily packaged in, in a movie as the rise and fall of a, of a villain who was undone by his own hubris or whatever. But... Real life very rarely conforms, but I would argue that when you're teaching history to kids, you we want to package it the same way. It's not just a Hollywood thing. You want to have 
here were the heroes, here were the villains, here's how they almost lost. You want to have those twists and turns because you're trying yeah. to make it somewhat entertaining. But it, you wind up making the same mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Like we even, I, I was yucking it up a, a few minutes ago about Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, which is, uh, you, I think it strikes me as more of an action example automatically just because it's by Michael Bay who makes movies about robots that turn into cars fighting each other. Uh, but even I feel like the most heady, thinky, lauded World War II movies also do this thing we're talking about where all war movies – uh, well, there's that apocryphal maybe quote from Truffaut where he says that you can't make an anti-war movie because you just end up making war look cool no matter what. But there's also the idea of how any war movie kind of flattens out what happened in the conflict. Growing up, I watched a lot of World War II movies. My my grandpa uh, made a point of showing them to us. It was like part of our upbringing and, and learning about uh, like life and values. You know, that, that wasn't ever really said explicitly very often, but it was there. Um, and one we watched a lot was Patton, uh, which which you mentioned a little bit previously. Uh, that came out in 1970. I've seen it, I think, over 10 times. And it's entirely a biopic about this general, George Patton, who really lived. But it's also almost entirely American. Like it uh, explicitly has a tension where the British keep screwing up and the Americans keep fixing it in the in the battle. Like the British general Montgomery is a problem throughout the movie. And then also the Russians are only a creepy enemy who Patton keeps saying, like, that's the next war. We should we have all the troops here. We should just go keep fighting them across Europe. And it's just kind of a Cold War movie, I think, that uses World War II to say how we should fight in uh, when it was made, the 70s. Because ultimately, all of those movies are about the era that they're made. They're not about the actual even if the filmmakers or the storytellers or whoever is presenting the history, even if they think they're giving like an unbiased account, it's colored by the current era. And regardless yeah. of what type of person Patton really was, the way he's presented in that film, it, there's very much a message of like it took this type of guy to to get things done, right? I, I feel like it kind of yeah, lionizes exactly. his... Yeah, his personality is like a distinctly American. Yeah. It's the thing that the kind of cult of the badass that Hollywood will always believe in because it makes for a heck of a story. They have a lot of iconography in the film of like, like there's a scene I mentioned where he explicitly is just telling people the Russians are the next enemy. We need to go and fight them where we are. And he says that while he's like riding a horse in an old Napoleonic kind of barn kind of thing to kind of evoke that he's this old school general that we don't have anymore. Uh, there's another part where there's like troop movements happening in Europe and there's uh, a bunch of mud and some kind of mix up. And so he starts just directing tanks like a traffic cop. Uh, like he is, he is every in every point of the movie uh, just like personally, heroically unsticking the gears of the war effort, always <laughs> fixing it like a there. Well, there's even one part where he has two pearl handled pistols and stands on the ground shooting at a plane that's strafing them in North Africa. Like he is That's basically a Yosemite Sam approach to air defense. It's kind of funny thinking about it. And so what year did that movie come out? It was 1970. Okay, so what was going on at that, at that time in terms of foreign policy and wars? We certainly had uh, best president ever, Richard Nixon. I want to say that was right around when China was being opened. Um, we were also coming off of a time when people felt that Harry Truman had lost China, uh, to the Soviets, and then maybe Vietnam. 
Vietnam was happening? Yeah. What's going on? The, yeah. It's a reaction to Vietnam in the way that everything made at the time sort of was. Because as time went on, and you know, we remember Vietnam as being a quagmire. We don't remember Korea much at all. But yeah. in some ways, it wasn't worse in terms of the number of people lost. It was in some ways worse in terms of accomplishing exactly as little as Vietnam did. And in terms of like us spending tens of thousands of troops lives to support a regime that had very little motivation to like the korea is something no one cared about like it, it was it didn't have any of those heroic moments you know it was in an era when you no longer could sell a war with propaganda like you could during you know when you'd have the newsreels right. that were just open advertising for the war right so you had Korea, then you had Vietnam, and as we had all these little unsatisfying engagements, and as mass media kind of came into its own and started bringing home video from the ground, as that happened, we started to long for World War II in a way that was almost like pathological, because we wanted, instead of saying, oh, this is probably what World War II was also like on the ground, with all of the mistakes and the blunders and friendly fire Right. And because that stuff was shielded from us, it was more like we're longing for an era when this is what wars were were like. Like we want back when you could have a, a cowboy come to the battlefield and, and whip up the, the guys against like an unquestionable evil. Like, why can't we have that again? It's like, well, as all nostalgia works, you're nostalgic for something that is was invented for you. One of the key parts of the movie, Patton, is based on a real incident where he was visiting a military hospital and there was a soldier who was shell-shocked and he slapped the man and told him he was a coward and that he needed to get back to the battlefield. Um, that all happened, but the movie spends a long chunk of its running time on the incident, the fallout, talking to the staff, Patton having to do like a public apology to the men, uh, and it like keeps coming up later in conversations with other other generals and that feels like they're almost sort of playing out the hardest part of Vietnam for people at home and on the ground, which was the mental strain of it, the, the really, really difficult experience of going through it. Uh, and so they're playing out a World War II version where a general is punished for being too hard on people, but also maybe we want that. Maybe we want to get back to just hitting soldiers instead of treating them. Uh, right, because he still won the war for us and and for the world, so really... This is like his personal foibles as a hero, but certainly not doesn't question how like the entire system works or anything like that. Because ultimately, Hollywood is very pro-war. Uh, they right. they can't help it. They, like even when they're as you mentioned, it, it, even when they're anti-war, story structure demands something of a happy ending. It demands the hero have a satisfying arc. It, it you know, if the hero committed war crimes or whatever, in the end, they have to come to terms with it or whatever. Audiences kind of demand that. But there's also no question that the gap between the history as it occurred versus the history that is convenient to remember colors everything. Everything about who we are, everything about how we talk to each other, not just about how we remember the past, but how we see the present. Because we see the present almost entirely in terms of, oh, this is just like when blank happened. And the thing with World War II is that has become kind of a trump card because there was unquestionable evil on one side and mm -hmm. unquestionable good on the other. 
And that story had a beginning, middle, and an end, and the good guys won, and then the war was over, and everyone went home, and there was peace. It is proof that war works. It's proof that everything you know Hitler believed was bad, which that's that's great. But then, because you have that as your trump card, if you can frame anything as Hitler, then that's supposed to be the end of the conversation. Because after all, we all know that the only way to stop Hitler is to have a world war and that it was justified. And then everything that we did was exactly right. And boiling it down to this almost a cartoon, like it's not even boiling it down to a movie. It's boiling it down to a story that can be told in 30 seconds. That's so oversimplifying it that it becomes wrong. But just to reiterate for the second time in this episode, the nuance is not Hitler wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. The nuance is in understanding all of the things that went into how we got there and all the things that went into beating him that have now gotten lost but are now extremely important to remember. Yeah, absolutely. We mentioned Saving Private Ryan a bit, and that was sort of the, I think, first spark for me thinking about this because... Um, there's an essay by Chris Hayes, who's now an MSNBC host, but also it was turned into a sort of graphical column on a great site called The Nib. They have a lot of good comics, and we'll link to that. But he talks about how in the George W. Bush years, when 9-11 had just happened, there was a lot of framing of America and what it's about and what it was trying to do in World War II terms. And Bush would explicitly say things about how we needed to find a renewed purpose for ourselves by fighting terrorism, much the way our forefathers had found it by fighting the Nazis. The piece by Hayes, he really picks out the movie Saving Private Ryan as like a driving philosophical example of that idea. Because in the movie, on rewatching it and thinking about it again, I feel like Private Ryan is almost a MacGuffin. Like he's almost the the briefcase in in Pulp Fiction or something. Like that's that's what brings the troops into the field. But it's almost primarily about Tom Hanks's sergeant, and then the actor Jeremy Davies plays a character named Timothy Upham. And Upham is an intellectual. He's philosophical. And there's a key part in the movie where they've captured a group of Germans. They're going to have one of them dig his own grave and then kill him. And Upham begs Tom Hanks to let the guy go instead. And so Tom Hanks does let the guy go. And then later in the film, while Upham is cowering from battle because he can't handle it, Tom Hanks is killed by this German who, instead of just leaving the war, went back to the Nazi side and kept fighting for them. And so this Chris Hayes essay in this piece argues that the message baked within Saving Private Ryan is that the intellectuals and the war questioners will get in the way of us defeating evil, which is a pretty pretty noticeable piece of propaganda if you pay attention to it. But uh, Saving Private Ryan is the most successful and profitable World War II film ever made. And I don't know how many people noticed that as they were watching it in the theater. We are immediately on very shaky ground because Steven Spielberg, when talking about the Holocaust and the Nazis, is coming at it from a different place than I am. There is nothing wrong with any sentiment he has or not wanting to portray, like not wanting to humanize the Nazis or anything like that. Like only a crazy person would say, you know, well, you should have told the Nazis side like it, you know, they probably have their own private Ryan. They were trying to rescue. <laughs> it's not that it's that in the name of correctly trying to draw a stark moral lesson 
you accidentally frame everything in terms of, look, ultimately, this is a bunch of guys, good guys supporting each other, trying to stop evil. And that that's all that yeah. matters, that that's like the end of the story. And that at the end, you know, when it finally fa- flashes forward back to present day and the old man, Ryan, is like telling his kids, like, you have to earn this. These people died for you for you to have this today. And you can't, you know, don't throw it away. Don't don't waste it. That's a fine message. It's a message that we have been totally immersed in for so long that any effort to understand a little bit more about it, for instance, part of the nuance is not that Hitler wasn't so bad. Part of the nuance is that Hitler had a lot of fans in the United States leading up to the war. And a lot of these people were very powerful industrialists and they were very wealthy. And to this day, you can do a cracked article talking about things that Henry Ford said about the Jews and that lots of prominent Americans said about eugenics and and that in polite society among these country clubs and these people who were millionaires and landowners and business owners could very casually talk about, you know, oh, well, yeah, of course, we've got to stop these people from breeding. Of course, the future lies in can we make sure only the good people breed in the wake of the war because of once it was discovered what had occurred with the Holocaust, there was a lot of people running for the hills, doing everything they could to distance themselves from the things they had said and written prior to that. And so a lot of the America was pure good, Hitler was pure evil narrative was on purpose because the eugenics thing did not start with Hitler. The conspiracy theories and such about the international Jew, that did not start with Hitler. We would love to believe that it did because that way when Hitler put a bullet through his own brain, you could say, see, all that stuff is gone. We, it, it, his, when he painted the walls with his own brains, all of those ideas went with him. Let's all just move on, shall we? Let's, <laughs> there's certainly right. nothing in our own soul that we need to purge still in terms of our own opinions about, well, maybe the world has too many of the wrong kind of people and maybe those people should stop having babies. Oh, no. America believes in freedom. Hitler believed in evil. Freedom defeated evil. Now let us all stop talking about it in any terms other than that. <laughs> yeah, as, as I understand it from the historical documentary Wolfenstein, uh, Hitler is the boss <laughs> level and a robot with a machine gun. So it sounds like everything's fine. Yeah, I think it was his torso mounted in a mech with Gatlin <laughs> guns with for, for arms. Are you hiring? Because every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just kind of praying for the right people to see it. Use ZipRecruiter. They knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day, and ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
Got a question for you folks. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like, I, Schmitty the Clam, used to be, uh, you probably didn't think about them much. I don't know, they go on the feet, they're like a house for it. Hey, I recently discovered socks that changed the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Why don't you have the great experience I'm having? Because Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They're made from premium cotton. They have this crazy arch support webbing, honeycomb kind of thing. I compared it to Iron Man on a previous episode, and it's pretty similar. I didn't know socks could do that. They're just built different and built better. I have some dressy ones that are like cool stripes and some cool patterns. They also have short no-show gym socks that I use to, you know, work out and try to be healthy. And here is the best part, in my opinion, about Bombas. They donate a pair of socks to someone in need every time you buy a pair. And on a pretty big scale, they've donated over 7 million pairs of socks so far because they felt that they could not just build a company, they could also help us make kind of a better world for everybody to live in. So why don't you keep cool, keep comfortable, and keep contributing with the best socks in the history of feet, Bombas. Buy your new socks at bombas.com slash cracked today and get 20% off your first purchase. That is B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash cracked for 20% off. Bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash cracked. In case people don't follow news or Twitter controversies or terrible pundits, Explain the David Hoggins Hitler controversy. If you if you follow, like you say, just very difficult to read in stomach parts of the internet. In the wake of the Parkland uh, shooting in Florida, a lot of the high school students who were uh, had that shooting happen to them and their classmates uh, have become anti-gun, and uh, who can blame them? So, and one of the leading uh, activists of that is a student named David Hogg who uh, is more active on Twitter than some of the other students working for this, but they're all pushing for generally the same thing of some kind of gun control and some kind of thought for uh, how we run our society. And he is has been very consistently by people who are opposed to gun control and these kids, uh, he's been very consistently compared to Hitler online. There's a lot of like really poorly photoshopped memes of some real, some fake pictures of him with like one arm up to make it look like a Nazi salute. And uh, this is a a high school boy. This is a a not fully grown person who gets described that way online. What's their justification for that? And Or or more specifically, when they use that imagery, why is it they know their audience will be receptive to it? I think one thing they say, and it's like, Partly, it's a thing that often comes up in gun control arguments is that Hitler and other dictators, but mainly Hitler, uh, took people's guns away. And it was part of their means to achieve power. Um, And so then they connect it to this kid who saw uh, his friends shot is somehow Hitler. That's I think that's the leap they're making. Because they're saying he's advocating for the government to take the guns and that that is what Hitler's government did. Therefore, he is Hitler. We have reached a point where if you can get from 17-year-old anti-violence activist to Hitler in like one hour after a shooting, there may possibly be (laughs) a problem with how your your society talks about Hitler and remembers Hitler. I, I apologize if that's a controversial statement, but I feel like we may, may have lost track of the historical Hitler <laughs> and that he may, he may have transmogrified into a bland generic insult that just means 
the government is mean or you are being mean to me. And I think today somewhere there is a high school principal imposing a new dress code and that the students will call that principal Hitler. Because okay. after all, Hitler made people wear things. I know, like, it's funny and it's something people will say, uh, which, which is not funny. But uh, yeah, like, it, it's, it sounds so ridiculous and it's a thing. And like you mentioned a bit with eugenics and other things, like, Hitler is such a unique figure in our perception of him. But in terms of, like, world history, there were many, many dictators. There were many fascists and uh, in particular right around Hitler's time, but also other times too. And yeah, eugenics as a movement even didn't start with Hitler or with Germany. Like there were elements of Darwin's writing that Francis Galton jumped on, who was another British person who ran with it. And then you see eugenics-based ideas in people from the playwright George Bernard Shaw to the philosopher Bertrand Russell to Winston Churchill, the uh, British hero of World War II in pop culture was often quoted many times as being either uh, racist or full-on supportive of eugenics. I don't think he really enacted too many policies in that direction, but it's a thing that for some reason we're only fixated on the example of Hitler for these kind of things. If you Google, are you able to find an example of someone comparing Donald Trump to Winston Churchill in a positive way? Someone on the right saying Trump is our, our Churchill standing against ISIS or whatever, whatever, however they frame it. I just punched in Donald Trump, Winston Churchill on Google. First result is from McLean's, which is a Canadian site, saying Donald Trump has more in common with Winston Churchill than you think. Then there's the New York Times here citing Mike Huckabee, uh, the noted uh, least funny comedian on earth, uh, saying that Trump is like Churchill. And then the Times is saying historians disagree because, of course, they do. Uh, Yeah, the Trump-Winston-Churchill connection comes up, I think, because they're both uh, blustery older men who certain people think like cut through the red tape and get things done. Exactly. That is a beautiful example that maybe is even better than the Hitler thing, because they're on Trump's side holding him up as, well, of course, we all know who Churchill is. He's the guy who in those black and white videos told (laughs) those inspirational speeches that, that made England resist the Nazis via his inspirational words, and he was another key player that stopped the Nazis. Where if they actually knew Churchill's record and human rights record, you would have people on the left saying, yeah, that does sound like Trump. (laughs) In a a memo to the prime minister in 1910, because Churchill wasn't the prime minister then, he cautioned that the multiplication of the feeble-minded is a very terrible danger to the race. In 1937, Churchill told the Palestine Royal Commission, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people, but the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. And then in 1943, uh, Churchill and his war cabinet were trying to get as much grain to Europe as possible. And some historians believe that they got grain and rice to Europe at the expense of India, causing a famine that killed a couple million people. So yes. if, if any of that is high in your mind, a Winston Churchill comparison is not positive. Uh, but to, I'd say, 99% of Americans, it is the most positive comparison 
uh, you could basically make to a non-American statesman. Like He's pretty much number one. Yeah, it is the image of someone standing among the rubble of Nazi bombs and being defiant and inspiring a nation. Again, like Independence Day, it's, it's rallying a nation to stand up in the face of, you know, the ultimate, ultimate evil. Where yeah. knowing the actual record of what he believed, it becomes a slur. So you could <laughs> then have people say, how dare you? How dare you play the Churchill card? But we have right. decided that <laughs> we have decided that that stuff is that's all forgiven because, again, of the simplistic way we remember World War II, that it was ultimate good versus ultimate evil. And really, does it matter? Does this other stuff matter? The things with their policies in India and everything that happened there. Like, really, when you're facing against ultimate evil, do you are you going to criticize, you know, the way your fellow soldiers are, are dressed or talking when you're trying to stop Satan himself? And it's like, if you want to maintain any kind of standards, yeah, you kind of do. And you kind of have to do a little bit more soul-searching than that. Because I think some people will listen to this and say, well... But Churchill was hardly, you know, extraordinary for that at the time. Those sentiments were common. Right. And that is our point. Right, that's true, yeah. It did not live and die with Hitler. And the thing that is inside of us, the tribalism, all of those things, Hitler didn't invent it. He did not take it to his grave. Like, let's say you had a hypothetical politician who was just a very run-of-the-mill populist who is maybe kind of running for selfish reasons, but like almost all modern populists do, they play like the anti-immigrant card mm-hmm. and the, the crime-mongering card to whip up votes, because that's an easy way to whip up votes among the working class, is to make them bitter toward immigrants who take their jobs and make them bitter toward criminals who take their property. It is... Right. In the populist politician playbook, it is in the corrupt populist politician playbook. Anyone who's looking to get into politics in the name of skimming money or enriching their friends or, you know, currying favor, it it is just something they do. If every time you see that, you say, oh, it's Hitler, you will immediately be steering yourself into a weird place because we do not remember Hitler as a historical figure. We remember Hitler as a word that means evil. It is a, it is a name that is no longer useful for explaining to someone a situation or what they should be doing about it. Right. Because like you say, that playbook is used by it was used by many of Hitler's contemporaries. It's used by many politicians today. And it's even been used to an extent by leaders that we were aligned with in World War II. Like there's that famous picture from, it was called the Yalta Conference of FDR and Churchill and Stalin. And Stalin, like we said, oh, horrible. Uh, really, he is widely believed to have caused the Holodomor, which was a famine in Ukraine that was on purpose, uh, sent people to gulags, had people executed all the time. And we were uh, allied with him and Churchill to win this great war that we want to see with no uh, complexity at all, when there's a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of gray in the process of accomplishing something that 
defeating Hitler, as we keep saying, was a good thing. And like, and uh, we're talking about saving Private Ryan before. Like, I think Steven Spielberg meant well. Uh, he's was quoted talking about it as saying, "The most important thing about this picture is I got to make a movie about a time my dad flourished in." Only when I became older did I begin to understand my dad's generation. I went from resenting the American flag to thanking it. And all of that's very positive. And all of that's like a vibe we need in society. But if we lose track of who Hitler even was or who the people in the rest of the world at the time were and what they were like, it becomes very difficult to figure out what to do now. Not only that, I would say that it dishonors their memory to make them into simplistic cartoon characters that were just flag-waving heroes, as if every American soldier who was there actually wanted to be there, as if every German soldier wanted to be there, you know, as if everything that was done, every strategic decision was made purely in the name of this will help us stop evil the best, versus having some rather more cynical long-term goals and looking toward, you know, post-war and the political and economic interests of the United States, you know, after the war. There's a lot that goes into that, that if you truly want to not repeat the mistakes of the past, you have to clearly understand the past. So today... In my bubble, my social media bubble on Twitter, I follow you know a lot of comedians, and then politically, it's a lot of very far left people, and then a few like libertarians, and I, I follow like no social conservatives. I get no like tweets about you know that are anti-abortion or anti-gay marriage or anything like that. But I get a lot that are pro-small government, and then I get a lot of people who have the actual hammer and sickle in their they figured out how to put it in their username. Oh man. They figure it it triggers the the red hats. It triggers the the Trump the Trumpsters. It's it's you know that they're going to they're going to bring back communism. Um and they have memes that are about bringing back communism and they mainly say it either because they're like 15 years old or because they know that it 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 makes people angry and you know on the other side. But to me that's a symbol of genocide they've got there and that they're using ironically because we're now far enough away from that threat that we can do that. Right. And I think that's the way it kind of works. And I feel like with Hitler, he morphed from real historical figure to propaganda figure to almost a comedic figure. Like he shows up in all sorts of comedies as a wacky bumbling character to now, as we mentioned, just a rhetorical device. It's just a word you say at people when you don't like what they're doing. And in my life, in the time I've been paying attention to politics, I've heard we can't have gun control because that's, you know, that's how Hitler, like if the Jews had had guns, think of how they could have stopped the the Nazis. We could spend the next half hour explaining why that's a bizarre argument. Yeah. To make. But it's the same thing from the other side. When anyone talks about immigration or tightening immigration or limiting immigration, it's like, oh, you want a pure white race, just like Hitler. If anyone talks about like population control, even if they talk about it purely from a point of view of like family planning on the right, they will say that's Hitler. Because after all, wasn't wasn't what Hitler was doing kind of population control? 
<laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Hitler was, they claim, was a famous environmentalist. Right. That's kind of a complicated question. But therefore, like Greenpeace is Hitler, because if you think about it, they feel like humans are ruining the environment and all of the humans dying would be good for the environment. So Greenpeace probably wants another Holocaust. Therefore, <laughs> Greenpeace is Hitler. I like that we got to two completely different political issues within like five seconds and Hitler still managed to carry through. That's incredible. <laughs> we can play a game where we literally grab any subject and you can get right. it to Hitler in about 30 seconds. He's like concept Kevin Bacon. And so on my social media right now, because what happened was Trump came along, obviously he's using that populist technique of using, using minorities as a, a tool, like a scare tool to get people to the polls. It is a technique I've seen my whole life. Reagan did it. The older Bush did it, you know, yeah, in Nixon earlier sure. his political career, the, you know, Bill Clinton did it. Like everyone played the tough on crime card and you can make air quotes around tough on crime. Okay. So when that happened, the media started calling him Hitler, and then there have always been hate groups in the United States. They never went anywhere. But they started becoming emboldened to go out in public because suddenly everyone's talking about them. And because the media had decided that Trump was Hitler, that means that these neo-Nazis who had lived in obscurity their entire lives, well, now they're newsworthy because we have a Nazi in the White House. So now let's put them on the news every night and doing it in that bland way that the news interviews people where it's like, well, why do you feel like the Jews should be exterminated? It's very frustrating <laughs> for those, uh, the rest of us, because you can see them like doing their, the Nazi or the, the white nationalist or whatever group they're, they're a part of that they're putting on their, their TV interview face and saying, well, of course we do not want to exterminate the Jews. All we want is a homeland that would be ethnically pure, where everyone can live among their own kind. So now you're in a world where every time you turn on the TV, oh, hey, there's an actual, there's an actual Nazi on my television. I wonder if, if people understood Trump more clearly as being terrible and disparate from a Nazi, then they'd probably be asking terrible people about him, right? Like rather than Nazis, I feel like we'd even get slightly better surrogates for him on TV. Yeah, or at least a better framing device to understand what's going to happen next. Because when, when the concentration camps don't show up, then it's like, oh, so he wasn't Hitler after all. It's like, well... Maybe instead of thinking of him in terms of Hitler, maybe it should have been Silvio Berlusconi or somebody or any one of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of like small time, like lower level populists who got into office often from wealthy backgrounds. Often this is something they do after they've gotten rich and then yeah. did a bunch of shady things and kind of abused their power because they have no respect for the office or for its traditions or anything else. They always get elected, you know, in, in the wake of public rage over something or dissatisfaction. The point is the moment you come out and say, as I've been saying for like two straight years, Trump is not Hitler. It's interpreted as, therefore, you should vote for Trump. It's like, oh, here's another, you know, another pro-Trump Trumpster trying to claim he's not Hitler. It's like, well, no, he's a, 
I think he's a different kind of terrible. It's You're going to be confused if you keep expecting Hitler, because in many ways, Hitler had like laser focus on what he was trying to do. I don't, I yeah. think Trump is just kind of trying to keep his name in the headlines and make real estate deals. I don't think he's an evil genius. I, I don't, I don't feel like he has this. I think he has a, a series of like vague things that he wants to do that his side wants, but it's not a mind Kampf situation where you're going to go back and read the art of the deal and see him laying this all out. Uh, you know, as like this, this grand plan he's had in the works for, for 40 straight years. There are like elements of what he wants that are Hitler-like and the fact that it's not on concentration camp or Mein Kampf or even particularly well thought out scale makes it harder to see that. Like there was the, uh, there was a Nazi principle called Volksgemeinschaft, which was to achieve a national community. And that really kind of meant uh, some racial things and things like that. And when a populist runs on anti-immigration, pro the normative ethnicity of the country, that's very, very similar to that. Like, I feel like that's a fair comparison to make, but because it then doesn't necessarily extend to uh, much, much worse things, it makes it hard to see that. It makes someone seem crazy for calling it out. Right. And that's where it gets so blurry and that's where it gets so difficult to talk about. Yeah. Because the big debate and where I always find myself disagreeing with other leftists is that like when, you know, the Nazis suddenly show up in the park or they're on TV and it's like, no, they should be stopped from speaking. They should be, we should be physically stopping them from, from talking. And so then immediately the other side says, well, no, you're Hitler because Hitler also wanted to stop people from, from speaking. It becomes this weird game of yelling Hitler at each other, the entire yeah. actual point of how to recognize what you're looking at and how to, how to actually stop them. Because I think there is a playbook for taking on populists who use racism the way you're just now talking about where, where they, they play on. It's not about exterminating people. It's, it's all in like vague terms of America first. Like who can argue with the phrase America first? If you're an American, <laughs> like that's the most innocuous thing in the world. If your argument against America first is just, well, that's similar to a slogan Hitler used, that to me doesn't carry any more weight than Hitler was an environmentalist, therefore environmentalism is bad. There's nothing wrong with wanting your president to look after your own country's interests first. That's what they were elected to do. Like that's, you know, if you found out your president had made some deal under the table with China and <laughs> given away a bunch of uh, of whatever, made some bad deal based on getting the kickback, you'd be mad. If you start acting like any talk of like fervent patriotism or over the top love of America is like Hitler, because after all, Hitler was all about patriotism toward Germany and Germany being like the pure, holy race or whatever. You're complete. You're immediately on indefensible ground because there's nothing wrong with having pride in yourself or your people or your state or your town or, or anything. Right. Trying to explain the point at which it becomes toxic. It's a little bit complicated. It's a little bit nuanced because Hitler didn't go wrong the moment he started selling Germany first bumper stickers. I don't know if they had bumper stickers back then. I assume the Nazis had <laughs> bumper stickers. That's not where it went wrong. It went wrong in other ways. 
He was using that as a tool to manipulate people. My dream is to build a population that is immune to that kind of manipulation because I hate the fact that it works every time, but he was using that as a tool to make people do something horrific. But the pride in the country itself was not the problem. Yeah, even and national pride is one of the oldest and most basic components of being a nation. So yeah, like you say, it's extremely hard to criticize without having the time and the schema for being able to say, here's where it goes wrong, here's where it goes off the rails. Even that America First thing, like if people don't know, there was an America First committee that was the primary organization pushing for America to stay out of World War II, mainly because they felt Hitler was not that bad. And then uh, that's also not even, and then America First was also the sort of slogan, a name that Donald Trump gave to most of his policy plans for the country now. But at the same time, like we've always had patriotism. John McCain in 2008 ran on a slogan of country first, which is different words, but the same uh, slogan concept. And so it's it's something that you need to be able to parse out. And so if we're all yelling Hitler at Trump, and also if the other side yelled Hitler at Obama for eight years, uh, it makes it very difficult to drill down to any of that. And they did yell Hitler at Obama for eight years, and they yelled Hitler at Bill Clinton, too. Well, I remember that vividly. You can still, even oh, though wow. Bill Clinton was a pre, a pre-internet president, you can go right now and do a Google image search for Clinton Hitler, and you'll find those photoshops. Every time someone becomes president in America, the first thing we do is we photoshop a, a Hitler mustache on them. Uh, they did it to Reagan. They did it to Bush. And yeah, I remember Bush. Yeah, it has reached a point where I believe a lot of people who agree with me politically think that that still means something to yell Hitler at somebody. It is my opinion that now, in 2018, it does not. And I think that when these ideas that we can't believe have come back, when you're like, how are there Nazis again? Aren't we done with this? It's like, well, see, we kind of never were. The belief that the wrong type of people are having babies, which was... Hitler's position and was also the basis of the wacky Mike Judge movie Idiocracy, which people on my side love to cite as, yes, that's a great example of what's going wrong. It's all of these trailer park rednecks having babies. The wrong people are breeding. They even, they spell it out so explicitly in the first couple minutes of that movie. Like, it's like a documentary with a narrator. That is not going to go away. Fear of immigrants is never going to go away. Children are racist. That is sometimes held up as proof that racism is good. (laughs) But Mm. children do a lot of things that we teach them not to do, like they poop their pants. They have to be taught why doing the thing that feels good in the moment, pooping your pants, is bad long term because you have to clean it up later. When you are a child... It is objectively more difficult to communicate with a kid who doesn't speak your language or that doesn't laugh at your jokes or that smells different from you or that likes different cartoons. Therefore, it is cognitively easier to be around people just like you. It's just easier. They understand what you're saying. They laugh at your jokes. You've all seen the same shows. You know, it is just easier to be around people like yourself. In the short term, 
That's what feels better, just as pooping your pants feels better in the short term. It feels great. In the long term, you have to be taught by adults who know better that learning to overcome those barriers, that that kid who you're having trouble understanding right now may be your best friend. That may be the coolest kid you've ever met. There's just a little bit of a language barrier that can be overcome with some work. The short-term work is worth it. Long-term, it pays off. But each kid has to be taught that again. Now that we're in a place in our history where the Nazis are back in the headlines, not for the first time, they were back in the headlines in the 90s too. None of my friends remember this. They think this is the first time since World War II that the Nazis have turned up. It is not. They, they reemerge every, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. Kids now can go on YouTube and listen to what we have no ability to stop them from seeing these videos. And they will listen to right. a very popular internet personality. It may be JonTron. And, you know, a lot of these guys just have popular video gaming channels. A lot of them are, were like popular Gamergate figures that then moved on to white nationalism because there's a big overlap between like anti-feminism and anti-minority stuff. And they will, they will run into this material and they will run into people who are very cool, who are very funny and charismatic and talk about video games, who will then start calmly explaining, well, you know, black people have a gene that makes them commit crime. And they will start citing all of these statistics about how in Europe is being replaced by immigrants, that every that there are four immigrant babies born for every one English baby, and they'll have these scary graphs that shows Hitler that shows that Europe is white and that it is slowly turning black, and they will choose those colors on purpose. Right. When that kid goes looking for a counter to that, if your only answer is that's something Hitler would say. You must understand you have used a nonsense phrase that does not have any emotional impact whatsoever because that kid has heard everything compared to Hitler his whole life, and it's a meaningless word. It's no different from saying, well, that's something a douchebag would say. You've not made an argument. If they see a protest in the park and they see a white nationalist in a suit and tie speaking calmly into a microphone saying, well, we of course don't want to exterminate any minorities. All we want is peace between races. And history has shown that when races are separate, blah, 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 blah. That person speaking very calmly, very rationally, and then a screeching protester starts slapping at them and clawing at their face and screaming, Nazi, fascist, Nazi. It looks like, which, if you're coming in cold, which of those two looks like the rational thinking human being? Right, the, the because, white nationalist does. Yeah, you've made the racist look like the cool guy. Cool as in calm, collected, in control of himself. This is their tactic. They know how to do this now. And the right. reason that you don't have a thriving bunch of kids who are actually turning into armband wearing Nazis. What you have is a whole lot of teenagers who will say, no, I'm not a Nazi, but of course I do agree that some races are just genetically less intelligent. Of course that came from somewhere. And if you're listening to this, if you don't know how to counter that with an argument, like if you don't actually know what the research is in terms of race and IQ and all that, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit in a moment, but yes. if your only response is that's Nazi stuff and tell me which YouTuber told me 
told you that, and I'll make sure their channel gets taken down. I promise you, you are not winning the war there. You're putting yourself on the side of censorship. You're putting yourself on the side of let's silence people who have ugly ideas. Because the other side, they're positioning themselves as the victims. They're saying that the white race is the most oppressed race in the world right now. That there is nothing worse than being a white male in America. They call it white genocide. And they say that the whites are being, that it is a slow genocide because they've got this map showing that America used to be entirely white and now there's all these brown people. Like, like they have a pile of bad data they can that sounds good to a kid who doesn't know any better, and they don't. Right. When we talk about these white nationalists having like a robust YouTube presence or looking good at a protest, we're, uh, we're not like complimenting them. We are warning you, the listener, that they have some pretty solid strategies worked out to do a bad thing. Like they've, they've even weaponized fashion. There's a Washington Post article we'll link to by Robin Given, which is in particular about the Charlottesville demonstration when people I follow on Twitter were like mocking the, the uh, white nationalists there for having uh, torches from Home Depot and stuff. But all these white nationalists are on purpose wearing very nice suits or very put together polos and very sharp, good looking hair as much as they possibly can to try to make old shitty ideas look reasonable. Like it, it's, a, it's a very decisive planned out tactic to make them look sane and make the people calling them Hitler look crazy when all you really need to do is get into what uh, we should probably get into, which is the slightly longer argument it takes to break that argument down. If you listening to this, if you find yourself somehow confronted by one of these professional white nationalists, if you're talking to a Richard Spencer for some reason, like if you, if you wind up talking to someone like this, it's a professional huckster. I completely agree. You have nothing to gain from talking to that person. They are very well practiced at saying things they know are intentionally outrageous to try to upset you because all they want is for you to get upset because the more you get upset, the more it plays into their hand. What I'm talking about is if a 15-year-old or if a high school kid asks those same questions and says something like, well, why don't we have a white history month? If your response is just a bunch of eye-rolling snark and to call them a Nazi, that kid is not playing a trick on you. That kid doesn't know. They're coming like like the professional Nazi, the full-time Nazi who's making like that person is arguing in bad faith. They're saying things they know aren't true. The teenager listening to them does not know what they're saying isn't true. And all of these things, all these facts that they're throwing out there. Like in my world, on my YouTube recommendations, I run into these these videos like YouTube auto plays them for me. It can't just be me because if you watch a video yeah, on same. some related subject, you'll get fed by their algorithm. Well, a bunch of people who watched this video also watched this video. And then this video is called The End of White Europe. And it's this guy talking into a camera in his bedroom about replacement theory and how white birth rates have dropped and how, you know, Muslim birth rates are through the roof and da da da. And he's got this graph that shows that even though both populations are rising, that somehow this means genocide, even though there's actually more white people than ever, there's there's even more 
other people, and that's kind of genocide, like proportionally. Like their argument, I, I can't emphasize enough. If if I compliment them and mention that they're funny, like they're cool, funny guys, it's like, how dare you compliment these Nazis? I would never hear you talking about a leftist that way. It's like, no, listen, I'm telling you why they're dangerous. Right. <laughs> they're funny. They're cool. They, they relate to teenagers. It, you're, you're focusing on the grossest, at most aesthetically displeasing version of a Nazi, a guy with a shaved head, combat boots, tattoos, you know, swastik on his neck. That's not who they're running into. They're running right. into somebody who is entertaining, who's fun, who they want to like. Ultimately, if you want to counter these people, I cannot impress enough that if your response is, well, history has shown when Nazis come along, the way you win is by uh, going, going to war with them. That won't help you here. You, you can't go to war with YouTube you right. you can't go to war with a YouTube culture where like personalities like PewDiePie guys like that they'll use racial slurs because they think it's funny or they, they use it as an insult. You won't win that way. You have to present a face of non-racism that is just as cool and likable as what these white nationalists are putting out there. And again, if you can't. Yeah. If you bristle at them being described as likable, I'm telling you the teenagers find them likable. I don't care that you don't like them. I'm saying that their personalities on the surface are likable and cool and that you have to win the hearts and minds of kids who want to listen to what these guys say because the other things they say make good common sense. When they, the other thing that guy said that day was that, you know, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a great game. It's the best exploration <laughs> game ever made. And also, America needs to get back to being a white ethno state. Like, it's all, it, yeah. it's all part of the same, it's all part of the same package. For people who don't know, it's exactly as jarring of a combination as Jason's describing. Like, it's like both video game talk and ethno nationalism and teenagers are eating it up. Like they're not put off by it's like, and, and PewDiePie is a great example of these folks. Cause like they are very, very, very popular. Like PewDiePie is became the world's most popular video game streaming person, which is hard to do. It would be like if the most popular comedian in the world was into this stuff or like if, if Michael Jordan in the nineties was also into this stuff, like that much reach, that much ability to connect with the youth. Yeah. He's the most, he was at one point, the most famous celebrity among people ages 13 to 18 in any format yeah, of any, not kind. the most popular streamer, the most popular among movie stars, rappers, entertainers, athletes didn't matter. And again, he's not, I, he could sue us for calling him a Nazi. It's not that his <laughs> issue was he uses like, he uses that stuff as a joke. He uses racial slurs as a joke or as an insult. Yeah. He uses like Nazi imagery as like a, like a, a goofy kind of lighthearted thing. And then kind of acts like he doesn't know why it's wrong. Then you have personalities like JonTron who just openly would just spent like two hours on a stream explaining why we must preserve the white race and why that he himself just saw a YouTube video. He's not educated in this. That messaging is getting out there and our method of fighting it 
is awful. I, I've not I've not seen for the most part our whole thing is we need to get these people fired. We need to get them cut off from their streams. We need to kill their sponsorship deals. And look, if I'm a sponsor, no, I don't want I don't want a neo-Nazi reading my ads. I'm, I, I fully support any company's ability to not want, you know, a, a white nationalist, you know, reading, doing live reads on their products. But at the same time, if you actually think you stopped the spread of white nationalism with your boycott, you're misunderstanding the issue. There's no yeah. gatekeepers on this stuff. So we have to, everything you keep saying to me or that I keep hearing on social media about, well, look what happened when we tried to debate Hitler. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is not that. This is a different situation. The, the, the method by which information travels is different. And the landscape is completely different. The things that got Hitler to power, it was a completely different set of circumstances. And it's, it, you know, where there's one Hitler, there have been 10,000 run-of-the-mill populists, you know, that, that run on, like, immigration fear, things like that. And for every one of those, there have been 10,000 regular people who are otherwise nice people, but right. also think that, well, we all secretly know that white people are a little bit more well-behaved, a little bit smarter, you know, it's just... You know, I got nothing against, I got nothing against, uh, you know, anybody. I got friends that are black, you know, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, that stuff is very common and those people are not all Hitler. And yeah. you have to stop viewing them through the lens of Hitler and start viewing them through the lens of somebody who heard, why can't we have white pride? If you have black pride and if Jews are encouraged to be proud of their heritage, why can't whites have that it takes some explaining to like that. What they're asking is actually the answer is not actually obvious. Cause as far as that messaging, cause like you say, there are no gatekeepers preventing them from hearing uh, these video game streamers and uh, some Prager university people and things, giving them one message uh, what we can tell them uh, in a fun way to counter that because it is doable. Uh, there's, it's, there's a few things you can do. One is saying that, uh, race is an idea. It's not actually a fact of, of who people are, making them different. And so there's also no real white culture. That's kind of a made-up thing. And as we were prepping this, Jason, you picked out that in particular, different groups of what uh, these white nationalists consider just white people, uh, those groups were very, very different uh, in culture in the even recent past. And they would never have considered themselves to be the same. Like, there was no point in history where the Irish and the Italians and the Poles and the Russians and, you know, the Scottish, like where they all like considered that where they had a word that meant where we're all white, like, like we may have our differences, but, you know, ultimately that was an extremely recent invention specifically to exclude certain people who had, you know, they, they were right. from Africa or the Caribbean, like, that was that was created as an agenda. The Irish who first came to America would be very surprised that we now just lump them in at, with as honorary white people. The Italians who came here and then faced like the anti-Catholic backlash would be very surprised that today they just walk around and then everyone's just going arm in arm with them as, yes, we're all, we're all whites united in preserving whiteness 
It's like you you tried really hard to expel us from your country. <laughs> like you yeah. called us a cancer when we showed up. And the only thing, the only thing that separates this, the difference between us and the Latinos who showed up is that our we're pale. We have a little bit more pale skin. Like like all, every all of your theories about how well, you know, there's a white gene that just makes us better at making money. It's it's certainly not anything structural in the system. It's something in <laughs> our what the same gene that makes us white also makes us good at, you know, selling insurance and 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 playing golf. It's like, well, okay, are are the Russians part of that? Or, or like are they cuz they're just as white as you are? The idea falls apart with just a very cursory understanding of, of history and how and what we used to consider different to be other races and what we used to consider to be minorities and why. Yeah. It, it, the fact that it's so artificial and that it was done with an agenda is important to know. Very few people know that. Like very, very few people. I certainly was not taught that in school. Yeah. And, and like you say, it's not just that like society changed its mind. Like it was nefarious. It was, we're going to exclude certain people versus other people. Uh, and it'll even, it even moved with politics. Like there were a lot of people doing the very bad thing of immediately after 9-11 treating Muslim Americans like some kind of sleeper cell. The same thing happened in two world wars with German Americans, but now they get treated as some kind of white normative thing. There, there's all kinds of decision-making and generally cruel decision-making going into what has now become something that white nationalist video gamers think is some kind of race that's always been a thing. Or the fact that when Kennedy was running for president, the idea of having a Catholic president yeah. was the way they would talk about a Muslim president now, but it's kind of, well, well yeah, but won't he really be loyal to the Pope first? <laughs> Like, you know, is he really here for America or is he secretly, you know, it's all of that stuff gets, as with all of this, the history gets retold in a way that serves their purpose. And so there's elements of this that shows up at different levels. Like the, there's the alt-right YouTubers and there's some that are just very right wing, but they share a lot of talking points. So to point at a Ben Shapiro or Tommy Lahren and say they're Nazis that just muddies the waters because they they're taking certain talking points that yes are in common with white nationalists yeah but they're also things that literally half of america believes yeah like like ben shapiro thinks muslim people are more violent than other people but if you call him a nazi it's confusing it makes it hard to pick that up right because that's that's not the end of the discussion i think we wish calling him a nazi just made his mouth close up and then that was he can't talk anymore after that and i think that that's the issue is that the idea is because nazis are pure evil because hitler was pure evil and we've all agreed that hitler was pure evil surely tagging him as a nazi ends the discussion and and the the open frustration i've heard from people on the other side it's like do we really have to explain why hitler was wrong in 2018 it's like no, but you do have to explain why white isn't an ethnicity. You do have to explain why their stats about black and black crime are misleading. You do have to explain why 
well, why are black people still poor when, you know, when uh, segregation ended 50 years ago? Hasn't that been enough time to fix it? And it takes explaining. You've got to get into, you know, like housing, redlining, and, and things like how even though, you know, they were technically allowed to go to white schools, the school systems in some cities are as segregated as they were before. We just found right. another way to do it. They all live in the same neighborhoods. Those schools are objectively worse. They have less money coming in because they base it on local taxes and property taxes. Therefore, they're poor. Therefore, it's worse facilities. The teachers are being paid less, so they get less experienced teachers. There's all of these things that still persist, that it takes explaining. Yeah, you have to explain why racism is wrong. Because to a white teenager, to be told that you're special and that you should be proud just because you were born with pale skin is great. That's like Harry Potter hearing that he's a wizard. It's like, it's <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. I am better than these brown people. I'm not out there burning down a uh, you know a gas station in a riot. I'm sitting here at home peacefully. Therefore, I am the superior race because I'm not. It's like no, you have to take that kid aside and you've got to do the hard work of explaining why those people are rioting, explaining the conditions that led to the riot, explain that you have to condemn the conditions that led to the riot as vigorously as you condemn the riot. You can't just yell at him or try to shame him out of those ideas or those opinions because that doesn't work. If you right. have an opinion, whatever opinion it is, if my only response is, well, only a jackass has that opinion, that may make you stop bringing it up around me because you don't want to make me mad and I make it awkward. It doesn't change your opinion. If you if you liked the Last Jedi movie, and I say, you know, well, only morons like that movie. That doesn't make you stop liking the movie. You may <laughs> feel shame over liking it. You may never bring that movie up around me because, you don't. I get weird when you do. But it doesn't make your opinion, oh, they're, okay, you're right. Only morons like that movie. Therefore, I now don't like that movie. That mechanism doesn't work, particularly on teenagers when they're in a, a period of their life where they're wanting to be kind of rebellious, and they kind of like defying authority. They like defying the grown-ups. They like feeling like they're pushing boundaries. That's why they love tasteless humor. That's why they, you know, love gross-out humor and things that, you know, in gore photos, they're pushing boundaries. You tell them not to do something, they immediately want to go do it. And we yeah. too often put ourselves on the side of simply scolding them in the name of, well, this is just Hitler stuff and we can't repeat what Hitler did. That history has been so completely sanitized and muddied and blurred. It's no longer useful for that. We kind of have to have the argument from scratch now and explain why you shouldn't be scared of immigrants how we got into the situation where we're in with races and why there's such a difference in income and, and education levels and all that. We have to have those conversations and it feels horrible because you feel like you're legitimizing the the Nazis by, by going on their turf and arguing on their turf, having to justify minorities right to exist. But because of the techniques that 
their site has started using. And because of how many of those ideas have become mainstream, I don't think we have a choice. In particular, when they're attacked for being assholes. There's also the, the sort of a persecution complex, I think, on the white nationalist side where they believe that, uh, like you said, the term white genocide is being used, even though, as far as I know, absolutely no one is dying. Uh, they also feel that they're like not able to celebrate white culture in some way that they uh, deserve to. And it takes some explaining to say, no, like, Everyone in at least the United States, for sure, is able to celebrate their own culture. If you feel that white culture is being prevented from being celebrated, for one thing, again, it's made up. But for another thing, you have as much right as everybody else. You're just being asked to maybe not treat it as the 100% normative thing that guides all of culture. And, and we're just trying to diversify entertainment a bit. It's not some sort of uh, encroachment or attack on uh, what people are, because everyone still has a basic freedom of speech. Another thing that gets thrown around is one of these people gets kicked off of, say, Twitter, like the the white nationalist Milo gets kicked off of Twitter, and he's like, oh, that's censoring my freedom of speech. And no, it's a private company that can do what it wants. If that's something you want to debate, you can get into that too, but it's not like a violation of rights or a suppression of anything uh, in a real way or a fundamental way. And you said they like sort of have a persecution complex. Their entire thesis is that they're persecuted. That yeah. that's all it is. Like that, that's the beginning and the end of their message. Like my beef with them saying, "Well, why can't we just just celebrate white pride?" It's that the way I've heard them express it, white pride is made up one hundred percent of slandering other races. <laughs> yeah, that that white pride is exclusively. Here's all of the ways that we are not black. But even then, when they will talk about like, well, why can't we celebrate the, the rich history of whiteness like the philosophers of ancient Greece <laughs> and the great, the, you know, Rome with the innovation of, of democracy and all of the, you know, America, the, the white, it's like, you know, the puritanical, the, the white culture and the great, the, the, the Celtic tribes, it's like, you know you're describing people who all went to war with each other, right? <laughs> like like you like you realize like when you lump in like the English and the French as all one united, it's like is it your impression that they didn't fight each other because they were like when they had a dispute it always ended with well, but at the end of the day, we're all white, gents. Like right. really, are are our differences are the differences between Protestant and Catholic really so bad <laughs> when you consider that we're all white at the end of the day? Like that's not my reading of history personally. As I understand it, when two countries like England and France are basically the same, they don't fight a literal hundred years war with each other. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and would have exterminated each other if they thought, if they had a weapon that could do it, would have used it. Like, like hated <laughs> each other more than you people hate minorities. Now, I feel like that is a fictional mythology you invented to justify every person who has darker skin as somehow being being lesser right and to take an incredibly ugly history of colonialism and trying to act like this was just god granting the 
blessed race, the lands that belonged to him. So that's my problem. Like if you're saying, well, why can't we just be proud of being white outside of that context? I don't know what that means. If you're talking about, we should be proud of like democracy and, and, you know, and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm not proud of them because they're white. I'm proud because they were Americans and believed in freedom and, and that sort of thing. Like there's a lot of ideas you can stand under that have nothing to do with their, their whiteness. If, if you're looking at all of these great scientists or whatever, and ultimately your conclusion is, you know, it's, it's their whiteness we should celebrate and not their brilliance, especially when those scientists were working side by side with Jews or Indians or with anyone else. Right. Like a global scientific community. Yeah. Any of them would have turned their noses up at the chance to work with, you know, whoever, like, you know, like some brilliant scientist in China. It's like, well, no, I'm doing this to for under the banner of whitehood. Like, I think that's something you invented. That's a fiction that is based on hatred and their whole persecution complex is like, well, the moment you, you celebrate whiteness, they call it a hate crime or they call it hate. And it's like, okay, but see, I've heard the way you guys talk to each other when you're not on a camera or when you're not on some polite debate show, and I've seen that right. all you do is trade like racist jokes and racist memes with each other and like video clips of black people shooting each other in a riot or something. And like it's all very glib and it's all 100% pointed outward. It's not a celebration of anything you are, it's a celebration yeah. of what you believe you are not which is black or Latino or whatever in, in which you define as mean, meaning savage, unclean, you know, uncultured or whatever. And it's like, that's the issue. It is in celebration of a mythology that is built specifically to give you an excuse to basically not grant any human value to someone who isn't white. You only see them as some kind of a pest or a savage or something that must be defeated or removed. But look how long it took to, to say all that. Right. It's, like, it's it, you, you have to walk through it. It is our job to put that in a way that is entertaining and engaging and that makes people want to listen to it. And I, that's like a horrible thing to admit that that's where we are, that you, you have to like, reteach these things that you think should be obvious, but it's not. And I think we should also see it as something that's relatively easy to do as a task. Like it's not as easy as just calling people Hitler, but I feel for instance, it's relatively easy to take these white nationalists and say, okay, you feel you are being persecuted in some fashion. Let's look at basically anything that's ever happened in history. As you can see, these other people are actually being persecuted and you just are getting yelled at on YouTube or Twitter. You know, it's very, very easy to do. But like basically the one corner of history you don't bring up to do that is Hitler because it's just distracting. If you bring up anything else at all that has pretty much ever happened, you can disabuse him of that uh, pretty easily and maybe have fun doing it. Yeah. And that is my position that I understand will be controversial. I think Hitler has been rendered useless for this purpose. I think that trying to call a kid Hitler is like trying to bother a fish with a squirt gun. <laughs> if, if, the, if the water is everywhere, the fish does not feel wet. 
folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for, among many things, spending a lot of time in the underbelly of the internet. It's a place we like spelunk into, so so you don't have to. Uh, enjoy it. And hey, you, why don't you spelunk into our much, much, much more enjoyable footnotes, where we'll have all kinds of history and culture and just facts from this episode. I know we had a lot of things about Winston Churchill or modern-day politics or the alt-right online that might have surprised you, and you can check out footnotes about it there. Also linking in particular one piece from the Los Angeles Review of Books that came out in 2016 that I think is just amazing in terms of digging into what we're talking about. The piece is called The Supermanagerial Reich, and it's about the political and economic systems that made things run day-to-day in Nazi Germany. Because we think about the major battles that were happening or the terrible leaders and the things they were doing, we don't think about how society worked day-to-day for people like that and also the social structures that led to the Nazis taking power. Did you know one thing that helped them take power was a major, major increase in income inequality that was accepted by Germany's traditional conservatives and their technocrats? But again, if you run around society just calling people Hitler, that's much, much, much less effective than reading an article like this, taking in what's there, and being thoughtful with them because you can get through to regular people and help them understand what's going on. What else is going on in the world? Well, uh, happy news. The Crack Podcast is live at UCB Sunset on Saturday, June 9th, with a show all about amazing actors who were not acting. Tickets just went on sale at sunset.ucbtheater.com. They're going fast, so get one before they're gone. Uh, Also, this is kind of a fun thing. If you're coming to the UCB Sunset Theater on June 9th, I have a fun thing of my own happening beforehand across the building at the Inner Sanctum stage. I wrote a TV pilot script. If you don't know the biz, a pilot, it's kind of the first episode of a TV series. It templates the whole thing. And uh, the script I wrote got accepted to a series they do there called Let's Table This, where we'll read the script. I'm really excited to share it with people. And if you show up in person to hang out, uh, you get to hear it, which I think is just fun. Totally up to you. It's at 5.30 p.m. that same day, Saturday, June 9th. You can make it like a double header of uh, me, which would be very kind of you. Uh, either way, that live podcast is going to be great, and we're really excited about it. Uh, also want to sh- send a thank you to fellow Earwolf show, Fake the Nation. Nagin Farsad hosts just like this amazing political roundtable every week, and she was in L.A. recently and had me on as a guest. It was very, very fun, along with friend of the show from our baseball episode, Rhea Butcher. You can hear that on the Fake the Nation feed, and please check that show out. They do really, really great work of having fun and being informative with just all the dumpster fire going on all the time. And as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that is great. And if you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A place where, I don't know if you've noticed, but you can really thread a lot of interesting thoughts on Twitter. You don't, you don't need to just do the six characters of the word Hitler. You can actually say quite a bit, send a lot of links. You get it. You use the service. You can find my Twitter account on there at Alex Schmitty, my name with a Y on the end. And I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. Same spelling, whole new cavalcade of stuff. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.
Folks, how often do you think about your socks? If you're like, I, Schmitty the Clam, used to be, you didn't think about them much. I discovered socks that changed the way I think about socks forever, called Bombas. Like I said, they're made from the best material. They're designed in a next-level way. And for every Bombas purchase you make, they donate a pair to someone in need. Over 7 million so far. Why don't we add to that total? Buy your new socks at bombas.com slash cracked today and get 20% off your first purchase. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.